once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Why is it that sometimes the worst people we know seem to be the most successful? They don't really care who gets stepped on on their way to the top and never get the justice we think they deserve. What might we learn from a change in perspective? Jeff Norris, director of Crew at the University of Alabama, continues the series, What's on Your Heart? with this message entitled, Finding Perspective in the Presence of God, which covers Psalm 73. Thank you for joining us today. As you've already called on, we're in a summer series here featuring some young leaders uh, that are not in our church, but uh, guys with whom we have a good friendship in our church, and Jeff is one of those. I first got to know Jeff when my son was at the University of Georgia. And Jeff was on staff with Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade there in Athens at the time. And he had a, a very significant impact on my son's life during that time. And I'm very thankful for that. For the last six years, Jeff has been the director of Crew's ministry at the University of Alabama. And since Jeff is a native of the state of Alabama, went there himself, he knows just how badly those people over there need Jesus, you know? <laughs> And I'm from over there too, so I'm pointing at myself. Uh, but what God has done in and through their ministry is terrific. When Jeff arrived there six years ago, from I understand there were about 70 students involved in the ministry. Now there are about 500 students involved in the ministry. And it's not just the number of people coming out for their large group meeting. It's the number of people who are coming to know Christ as Savior, who are being discipled, who are being equipped and sent to minister to other people. It's really been a work of the Lord that God has used Jeff in a great way. He also, for the last three years, has been a ruling elder at Trinity Presbyterian there in Tuscaloosa, a sister church of ours in the same denomination. And so just so thankful for what God's doing in and through them. Uh, Jeff's wife, Rachel, grew up here at Perimeter, the daughter of Dexter and Martha Woods, some of y'all may know. And uh, so there are a lot of connections that way. And uh, Jeff and Rachel have one son, three daughters, just a beautiful little family. You're going to get to see their picture in his sermon. So we're very, very thankful to have Jeff with us. So let me stop and pray for him as he brings God's word to us today. And we do thank you and praise you for the ministry of this brother right here, how you put your hand upon him uh, and how you have trained him up and led him. We thank you for the number of students that he's touched in Hattiesburg and Athens and now in Tuscaloosa and how those people are being mobilized uh, for the kingdom all over the place. And so Lord, we ask you today that you might fill him with your spirit, that you would use this powerful message that you've laid on his heart, use that in our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Roll, roll Tide. Anybody? I hear you. That's really the only reason Randy asked me to come speak. Um, I love this church. This is an awesome church. I'm not just saying that because I'm standing up here and uh, I'm supposed to say it. Uh, but as Bob mentioned, my wife grew up here. And so when we started dating as students at Alabama, um, we would come over here often to visit her family. And I would come with her often and we would come here. And through coming here, um, I started getting lunch periodically with, with Randy. And uh, just this church and Randy himself and so many in this church have had a tremendous impact in my life and in my spiritual development. Uh, then I think about our time in Athens. We were on staff with Crusade for four years over there. And the number of perimeter kids 
who came through over there while we were there that we got to know and know some of you through them and uh, just the privilege that I had to uh, invest in some of those students that were from this church, Hayes being one of them, and uh, David Pope, Randy's son, was the guy that I got close to and got to see God work tremendously in his life. And so great joy in being able to minister the gospel to some perimeter kids. And, and then lastly, I'll just say this. Uh, there are so many in this congregation who uh, financially and prayerfully support our ministry at Alabama, and uh, we just are so grateful for you and for this body and the ways in which you have ministered to us and loved us and blessed us over the years. So I wanted to start with that. Um, uh, where we've been, Bob mentioned this, but where we've been, uh, where you guys have been the last three weeks uh, is having guys come in and share what's on their heart. And so Bart Garrett came in uh, a few weeks ago and started off with a mission of God and then uh, Matt Ballard followed him up talking about the forgiveness of God and how God's forgiveness relates to our shame. Uh, last week, Gary Haugen, who's the president of IJM, International Justice Mission, awesome organization, uh, talked about the justice of God. And so where we're headed this morning is we're going to continue a similar theme and talk about the presence of God. And there's much to be said about the presence of God. And we certainly won't cover it all in 30, 35 minutes. We could talk about the omnipresence of God, that he's everywhere, that there's nowhere, we could say with the psalmist, that there's nowhere we can go and be away from his spirit. If I go to the heights, you are there. If I go to the depths, you are there. But where we're going to focus this morning is we're going to look at a different psalm, and we're going to focus on the aspect of, of being in, seeking in uh, the presence of God, moving towards God's presence. You know, a lot of times we pray, God be with us. And that's a, I'm not condemning that prayer. I'm not saying that's a bad prayer. It's a good thing to ask God of. But I think a lot of times it might do us a little better to change the focus of the prayer to say, God, I know you're with me. I know you're everywhere. I know I can't go to the heights and you not be there, the depths and you not be there. You're with me. God, may I be with you. Help me to seek after your presence in my life, to be saturated with you and in fullness of your presence. So that's where we're headed. Let me pray for us. I know Bob just prayed, but I want to pray again. It's always uh, good for me to kind of even align my heart as we get started. So let me pray. Father, uh, would you bless this time? As we open your scriptures, we're thankful for the promise that they don't re return void we pray that you would bring to full fruition the good work that you've uh, planned beforehand for us, as Ephesians 2.10 says. God, would you just fill this place with your spirit? Would you fill me with your spirit as your messenger, that I may speak words that bring you great glory and praise? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are emotional people. And I'm reminded of this pretty much daily in my house. Let me show you a picture of my family. Um, my wife, beautiful wife, Rachel, and our, three, our four kids, three girls, and Samuel, our oldest. We love to talk about his story. Uh, God led us to Ukraine in 2005 to adopt him and bring him into our family. And then uh, surprised us and, and did and 
crazy work that only God can do in giving us three girls. And uh, so Samuel's on the far left. He's 11. Ellie Kate is in the middle. She's seven. Abigail is to her right. She's five. And then on uh, the far on our right is uh, Anna Mitchell. So um, we live in the deep south. We're in Tuscaloosa, as, as has been made known. And you can't live in the deep south without having at least one child with a double name. <laughs> we did two, just to be ultra, you know, ultra southern. Abigail's probably going, where's my second name? I, the others have it. I don't. But we're emotional people. I'm reminded of this every day in my house. It's, it's pretty common that you would hear in our house something along these lines. Sweetie, we, um, we're not going to be able to go to the pool today. I'm, I'm sorry. And what we hear in return is, we're, we're not going to go to the pool. <laughs> and then just break down. And, and that's just me when Rachel tells me that. I, I mean, like, what's, <laughs> once, the, once the kids chime in, I mean, the emotions are just out the roof. Um, I like the pool. Get really upset if we can't go. Um, but you know, I joke about that. Your kids are emotional. Obviously, I've commonly said to people that kids just express outwardly what we wish we could express as adults because it's in us, but we just can't because it's not socially acceptable. We're emotional people, and it's okay. God made us that way. And as we continue today, I don't want you to hear from me that emotions are bad. Emotions are good. Oftentimes they serve as a much needed dashboard, if you will, to the engine of our hearts. They show us, they kind of light up and, and something comes out that we go, oh, why is that there? What's, what's really going on down in there that I might need to look into? But what do we do with our emotions? Tim Keller gives us something to think about when he says this. He says, the Bible teaches a third way of dealing with emotions. He says, rather than venting them, which he calls the irreligious approach. This is the approach where uh, if, you're, if you're not trying to be moral, if you're not trying to be good, religious in any way, you just, you just say what you're going to say, you do what you're going to do, and it comes out, and you don't care who it hurts. And so you just vent your emotions. So he calls that the irreligious approach. Or you suppress them. And he calls this the religious approach because for many of us, particularly in the South, we've grown up in some type of religious tradition to where we've been taught either um, explicitly or maybe inadvertently or implicitly that, that we need to suppress our emotions, that we need to put forth a front that says we've got it together so that if I'm really down, I can't really talk about it. Or if I'm really elated, I don't want to freak people out. So we suppress. Keller says this, Rather than venting them or suppressing them, the Psalms teach us to pray our emotions. Over and over again, we see in the Psalms people of God coming before into the presence of God and saying things that you and I initially go, is that, is that okay to say that to God? How long, O oh Lord, will you forsake me? How long will you forget me? as David lamented. And so we, God invites us, and we see through the Psalms that he invites us to come into his presence and to pray our emotions. When we think about our emotions, let me finally say this before we go to the text. It's pretty normal for us oftentimes to be controlled by what we feel. 
And here's what happens. The more that we live in this realm of being controlled by our emotions, by what we feel, what tends to happen is more and more we tend to move away from what is true. And our emotions fog the mind. They blur the eyes of the heart to see reality and to perceive clearly who God is, who we are, who others are, and what our circumstances really are. And so that's where we're headed. Turn to Psalm 73. If you've got a Bible, great, turn there. Um, or some type of device, iPhone, Android. Don't fight over which one's better. Um, if not, if you don't have anything, great, we'll have it on the screens. But this is a psalm of Asaph. A lot of times we assume that the psalms are all of David, but this one is not. This is a psalm of Asaph. Reading in verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So let me just say quickly, this is Asaph starting out by saying, this is what I know to be true. Verse 1, is he's saying, this is what is true. God is good. Okay, but then things shift a little in verse 2 to what he feels. I know that to be true, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 3 is somewhat of a summation verse for what's coming next in the the, um, coming verses behind it. But he was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he tells us more about how he felt about that and what he's noticing, or at least what he thinks is true in what he feels. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Fatness in that day and time was a mark of prosperity, wealth, and notoriety because you had everything you needed. You could eat and gorge because you were rich. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues, their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They even say verbally, uh, mocking God. And then verse 12, again, kind of a summation verse of what he's just said. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Notice his emotions here what he's feeling, that he's noticing the prosperity of the wicked and he's jealous, he's envious. What we're going to look at next, I'll go ahead and mention it, but in the next verse he talks about, in vain have I followed you, Lord. Because what he's wrestling with, what's implicit in this text is this deep, emotion of I'm giving my life to you, Lord, and I'm struggling. Circumstantially, things around me are falling apart. But all these people who mock you, they don't give a rip about you, God, are flourishing. They're prospering. What's up with that? I don't, you may be thinking of people in your mind right now that you have viewed that way before. 
You may be going, that's me. I'm, I'm the prosperous and I've totally ran from God. I know for me, I, I think about just one of the things that comes to mind is there's a really prominent guy uh, in Tuscaloosa that I certainly won't name, but uh, he has a notorious reputation. He's incredibly wealthy. He owns half the buildings in uh, the town, and he has this incredibly just awful reputation for how he treats people and the ways in which he goes about getting his wealth. And I've often prayed for his salvation, that he would come to see how much he needs Jesus. But, but he would be a guy that would fit this description of, of looking at someone that outwardly and inwardly and from every facet that you can possibly think about with that person, they don't care about God, yet everything in their life is good. And yet in your life, in my life, we go, God, I'm, I'm giving everything to you, at least the best that I possibly can, and, and things kind of stink. Certainly doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel. But this is not a psalm just for this specific circumstance of looking at those who have more than we do. This is a psalm that leads us into the realm of God's presence to pray to him all of our circumstances that lead us to the feelings that would, that would move us away from him, that would begin to convince us of things that aren't true. This is for anything and everything. Maybe it's, I've lost my job. Maybe it's, my husband has cancer. Maybe it's, I've been trying to get pregnant for so long and I finally do and I have a miscarriage. Maybe it's I'm going into my 30s and I'm still single. I'm going into my 40s and I'm still single. God, I don't think you've called me to singleness. What are you doing? You know, the, the miscarriage, the infertility and miscarriage, well, that's, part, that's our story. We went through several years of trying to get pregnant. We finally do and Rachel has a miscarriage. I think about vivid memory of sitting in front of the TV. This is when we lived in Athens. And I remember sitting in front of the TV. I never watched the news, but for whatever reason, I turned the news on. And, and what I see back-to-back -back nights, I think maybe I turned it on the second night just because I was like, surely it'll be better than the first night. I turn it on. And I see this story of a, uh, a woman who has thrown her baby over the balcony. The next night, I'm watching the news, and one of the lead stories is another woman who has thrown her baby in, in the trash. And you talk about deep emotion. I was so mad at God. I didn't want to meet with him. I didn't want to talk to him. I'm feeling deep within me. God, here we are. And I thought way too much of myself at the time. And I'm sure I still do in many, many ways. But I, I, here I am, a minister of the gospel. I'm trying to tell everybody I possibly can about you. And all Rachel and I want to do is raise children in the admonition of the Lord. And you're giving these wackos babies. What are you doing surely doesn't feel like God is good to those who are faithful to him. What begins to happen to us, what certainly has happened to me at many times in my life, is we get so focused on comparing ourselves to others. 
We get so focused on our circumstances that we begin to lose grip of what we do have, namely God himself. And it sounds really Christian-y trite to say this, but it is absolutely true that God is enough and that he satisfies us in the deepest levels. When we begin to compare, we lose sight of that. When we live in the horizontal, we lose sight of that. That's the first point I want to give you. If you like to fill in blanks, today's your day. First one is this, horizontal comparison leads to debilitating emotions. Horizontal comparison leads to debilitating emotions. A lot of times what we do when we compare is we only, we end up in, in just one of two places. If you compare horizontally like Asaph was doing with those around him, the wicked that were prospering, prospering you look around you and you either end up really self-righteous because you determine yourself to be higher on the end of your comparisons and you go, I'm better than them, I have more than them, my life is together more than them, at least I'm not as bad as them. Whew, tough, I hate that happened for him. I'm glad that's not me. And so we get really self-righteous. Or as we compare, we end up on the other side in despair. Because as we compare and with our finite knowledge and limited vision of what we see about our lives, we begin to say, everyone has more than me. No one has to deal with what I have to deal with. And we end up even in despair spiritually. Certainly God doesn't care. Second point that flows out of that one that we see in the text is this. Vertical orientation leads to proper perspective. Look at verse 13. I alluded to it a minute ago. Asaph continues expressing that he feels as though all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I I would have betrayed the generation of your youth. He's, He's saying, if I had talked about this, I would have led many others down this path with me. But then everything begins to change in verse 16. One of the things to be aware of when you're reading scripture is this, always look for the buts. Now, that sounds weird, but the, the, everything hinges on that word so many times in Scripture. One of the best ways you can share the gospel with someone. I can't tell you how many students, and I, I, just, I just guess, I think, I'm pretty sure that it doesn't change as we get older, because college students say, I don't know how to share the gospel with someone. And a lot of times I'll come back to them and I'll say, can you read? And they say, well, yeah. I say, whoever you want to share the gospel with, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 with them. Just open it, read it together, talk about it. Share the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the first three verses are about who we are apart from Christ. We're dead in the trespasses of our sins, so on and so forth. But verse 4, the reason I'm telling you this is because it's kind of like this verse. There's a but. In verse 4, but God might be the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God, being being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together again with Christ. There you go. That's the gospel. And that'll preach. So look for those buts. And there's one here. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task to me. I was so tired, God. I couldn't make sense of my life. All the things going on in it and everything around it. 
Verse 17, until. If you've got a pen, underline, circle, highlight, asterisk, whatever, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Vertical orientation leads to proper perspective. Vertical orientation is just a fancy way of saying getting into God's presence. Asaph didn't gain a proper perspective until he sought and entered the presence of God. You see, if we live in the land of the horizontal, constantly comparing ourselves to others, then what will inevitably begin to happen is we will begin to feel like our world emotionally is in chaos. Because this is why. When we live from circumstance to circumstance and comparison to comparison, where our eyes are, our eyes are on everything around us. And we're looking here, we're looking down. Oh, I just can't believe this has happened now. And oh, they don't seem to have to do this. And, all. and what happens when we go into the presence of God is I think about uh, Hebrews 12 too, where it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God graciously and mercifully, and because he's good, begins to lift our head up to see him. And suddenly when we see him, when we get clear perspective of God himself and we get clear vision of him, everything else becomes into focus. You see, what we feel commonly, emotionally, is chaotic, God brings order to. Doesn't mean that necessarily our circumstances will get better, but when our eyes are on him and he lifts our head to see him, then this is what happens. Listen to this. When, when we see God rightly, from being in his presence, when we see God rightly, then we see ourselves rightly, and then we see others rightly, and then we see our circumstances rightly. Doesn't mean everything falls into perfect order, but we begin to see clearly from God's perspective, and we get to see him. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a pool. I don't know why I keep talking about pools, but apparently I told you I liked them. Um, I don't know, I can remember this happening to me a few times when I was younger, being in a pool, a lot of kids swimming around, and I remember uh, doing some like, you know, hey, you go under, see how long you can hold your breath, I'll count, and then I'll go under and I'll see if I can beat you, and you get under the water and you know that they had gone 32 seconds, and so you're counting in your head, 33, and you get to 33 or 34, maybe you make it to 35, maybe you've got a really good breath and you make it to 40, and you've held your breath for so long, you come up out of the water, and because you were oxygen deprived, you're a little disoriented. I remember doing this, and it was kind of like a little, you kind of go black a little bit, kind of see the little specks, the stars. And, and, but then you take that deep breath, and you breathe deeply, and everything reorients. Because you've just taken in what you need to thrive. That's, that's who God is. He's our oxygen. We get lost in the land of our emotions, and we get so focused on what's around us. And we get in this horizontal game of comparison, uh, uh, comparison. And we begin to lose the very oxygen that we were made for, God himself. But when we get into the presence of God, suddenly we're able to breathe deeply again. And it doesn't necessarily mean that our circumstances changes, although they might. But we just begin to breathe and say, yes, God, you are good. Because as the end of this psalm says, the nearness of God is my good. God, it is good to be near to you. Let me just say briefly, 
Just a side note that kind of coincides. Humility, by the way, is found in the presence of God. Listen to this. Humility isn't as much a characteristic trait to strive to possess. It's not as much that as it is a place to go. Because no one is prideful in the presence of God. You think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He gets into the presence of God and immediately the only instinctive response is to hit his face and say, woe is me, a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm of a people of unclean lips. You showed me a, a prideful Christian and I'll show you a Christian who is not spending much time in God's presence. You may be asking, Jeff, give me something practical that tells me what is the presence of God? Is this some mystical uh, thing that I, I just have to kind of hope that God's presence comes on to me? It's, it's way easier than that and it's way uh, more practical than that. And when I tell you where, where we find the presence of God and how we most get into his presence, you're going to go, I knew that. And I'll say, yeah, so let's do it. Where we get into the presence of God is primarily these three ways. Prayer, praying our emotions, modeling our spiritual life after those of the psalmist to go before God and just be brutally honest and let him reorient our hearts and recalibrate our hearts and move us spiritually, emotionally where we need to be. Secondly, his word, the scriptures. God speaks to us primarily through the scriptures. And so we need to be in his word often, both with ourselves, alone with God, and with others in community. And then that leads to the third one. The third is his people. Prayer, his word, his people, this, corporate worship. You know, back in Asaph's day, the the way to get into the presence of God was you had to go into the temple because back then uh, the presence of God only dwelt in the Holy of Holies. But once Jesus ripped the, the veil for us. We have direct access, as, a, as Hebrews 4 says, that we have direct asset, access to the throne of God. And so we can approach him with confidence and draw near to him in our time of need. And so we don't have to necessarily come here to be in God's presence, but God has blessed the local church to be an avenue through which we get to corporately experience and see and know God and be in his presence. As we sing, as we take part in the sacraments, as we minister to one another, as we saw in the video of David as we and Ralph, as we take on each other's burdens and love each other in brotherly and sisterly love, as we do these things, we begin to experience God's presence more in our life. So being a part of God's people is hugely important. If you keep reading in this psalm, and I'm not going to have time to go into this point as much as I would like. I joked in the first uh, service this morning that maybe we can get, uh, get Randy or Bob or David or somebody to do a, uh, a talk on eternal perspective. But what begins to happen with Asaph? As his head is lifted to see God, he begins to focus not on who has it better than he does, but on the hope of glory to come. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I, pricked in, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
Then listen to what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So the third thing I just want you to notice, and, and we'll, we'll hit this briefly. Considering the end gives proper perspective to the now. As we think about what's to come, what's promised to us, the, the second coming of Christ, the glory that is to be revealed to us as followers of him, we rejoice because our eyes are fixed on Jesus and on Jesus' return. Uh, let, me, let me just say briefly on this point, eternal perspective is one of the most crucial disciplines of the Christian faith that we must develop in our lives to be able to see that God has so much planned for us and that even the here and now, that even though it may stink, our hope is not in that. Our hope is in what's to come. If we seek to follow Christ yet don't develop a robust eternal perspective, then much of our Christian life will be frustrating if we're not focused on the eternal. Let me leave you with one final image. You'll notice in verse 25 and 26, I'll read it again. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And then he says this, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For many of you, this is a verse you've memorized because it's so good my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. That word for strength there in the Hebrew can also be translated as rock. That he is the rock. God is my rock that I firmly set my feet upon and sink deep into the rock of God. He is the strength of my heart, the rock of my heart, and my portion forever. I want to focus on that word portion real quick for this, lasting, uh, this last image. When I think about the word portion, I think about a table. I think about, uh, I think about my grandmother's table growing up, who's uh, here tonight and a member of this church or this morning. I'm used to speaking at night. Uh, I remember sitting at her table, and we would always, growing up, we'd always sit at her table, and she would prepare the best food. And it was always this home style, you know, just good southern way of doing dinner or supper, right? You say supper if you're really from the south. And there was, the way it would be is, it, you know, you don't go and serve yourself. There's all the portions of the food are on the table. And then you choose, what am I going to eat? Hey, pass me the, the mac and cheese. Hey, pass me the, uh, the potatoes with gravy. Pass me, you know, whatever. Give me the chicken. And then it pass to you and you partake in what portion you want in that way. Except for this analogy, the picture I want to paint for you is that you're seated at this table, you're bellied up to it, and you've got your napkin on, you're ready to eat, but the portions on this table in a spiritual sense are all the things that we tend to make life about other than God. So maybe this portion over here is the, is the portion of my, uh, my business endeavors. Uh, are my sales up? Have I done enough? Am I making enough money? Uh, can, I, uh, can I have enough to pay the mortgage? Whatever it may be. And this becomes, for some of us, our portion. Everything else on the table, we kind of move away and say, this is where I'm going to eat to nourish my soul. Is here. Or maybe it's a relationship. Uh, for those of you that aren't married, maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend where you begin to make that your portion, where that is where you eat. That's your bowl that you sink into and continually seek to satisfy yourself at the deepest levels through that portion. 
Or maybe it's your kids, where you, you've put so much stock in your kids that they become the portion of your life to where everything else, including God himself, is secondary to your kids, and they are the primary portion of your dinner table of your heart. And so here's what begins to happen, though. The more we live there, the more this is what happens. So let's go back over to this analogy. So the, the businessman who is so preoccupied with filling himself with this bowl of sales numbers and am I doing enough? And this has become his world. And this is where he's trying to find life and meaning and identity and nourishment. And the emotions that come with this are all over the place because he's, his numbers are up and down. Therefore, his emotions are up and down. Therefore, his faith is up and down. And everything seems to begin to crumble because when his numbers crumble, he crumbles. Or maybe it's back over here with the relationship. You've placed so much stock in this relationship. And then when this relationship begins to crumble, you crumble because that relationship was your portion. Or maybe the kids. When our kids disobey, when they rebel as teenagers and run away from us and from God, when their life and faith begins to crumble, we crumble because they're our portion. I'm not saying those things are not important, but they will never, ever nourish our souls. And so what we have to remember is that our portion is Jesus. I think about John 6, 35, where Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry or never be thirsty again. He's talking about satisfaction language. He's given us this image of eating of him to satisfy our souls. And then he says, the very next chapter, he says, for anyone who thirsts, come to me and let him drink. And out of him will flow rivers and fountains of living water. And so what we see is that when we see this verse of that God is my portion, that that is Jesus. They didn't know this. This was pre-Christ. Asaph was pre-Christ. But as God's redemptive story goes on, Jesus begins to insert himself into the story of God throughout the Old Testament and say, I'm the one that nourishes you. I'm the one you dine on. And as we begin to nourish ourselves more on Jesus and we begin to fill ourselves more with him, the problem becomes when he crumbles, then we... But he doesn't crumble. What does the text say? He is the rock. It's the strength of my heart and my portion for how long? Forever. May we sink our feet deep into the rock of Jesus and make him our portion forever. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Would you bless the reading and the teaching of your word. God, we are people that um, you have made as emotional beings. I pray that we would not suppress those emotions. I pray that we would not vent those emotions in ways that don't bring you glory and honor, but that we would uh, go before you often and pray our emotions to you, get before you and seek your presence. Father, help us to realize more and more every day that what we need more than anything else that this world can offer us is we need your presence because you truly satisfy. God, would you convince us of that? Lord, we, we believe it now.
probably, most of us, some of us. But we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and we are going to be prone to forget it really quickly. Would you keep us in a state of mind, in a state of heart that would constantly lead us into your throne room, that we'd be seeking your presence in our lives for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.